Hello, Pontifacts listeners. I'm Barry McStay. And I'm Ben Vandeveld. And we'd love you to listen to Worst Foot Forward, our podcast all about failure. Each week, we are joined by a guest to discuss the world's worst something, from serial killer to god, sex scene to mythical creature. And along the way, we've discovered things like murderous game show contestants, pirates who plundered hats, February 30th, seagull wine, and the great detective, Herlock Sholmes. Subscribe to Worst Foot Forward on iTunes, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Check out our website, worstfootforwardpodcast.com, and join us for some fun-filled zero worship. Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is the first episode of 2019, episode 28, Pope Felix the First. Happy New Year, I guess. Happy this New is Year! such a f- weird thing to say on December 3rd. I know, right? We record ahead so that you don't miss an episode. Mm-hmm, it's true. It's for your convenience. And side note, I love the name Felix. This is such a great Pope name. <laughs> Are you ready to get back into Popedom, even though in reality it's only been like a week? Whereas- yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. They just haven't been listening for several weeks. And probably in the time before this episode comes out, we've been recording like mad and taking full advantage of our Christmas break. So that's hopefully a good thing. I am working up confidence for our future selves here. So let's talk about Felix and his early life, if we can, because there's there's very little that is known about him at all. Uh, he was born in Rome, and his father's name was Constantius, which is going to be a popular name in the empire around this time. Uh, we could presume that they were a Christian family, and that he entered the church at some point. And he must have gotten to a position of note in the church, and when Dionysius died from natural causes, he was the elected successor. That's it. That's all we know about his early life, and uh, the, the whole thing about the, the times of peace for the church is means that there's not a lot of drama for people to write down, so... Alas. Moving on to his papacy, already. <laughs> we, we do have stuff to talk about at least for the rest of the episode. This isn't, like, gonna be one of those three-minute episodes that will come in the future, so... Ugh, three-minute episode. Oh my god, yeah, mm, when we get to the shortest Pope in history, I don't I don't know what we're going to do, but we'll figure it out. We'll just play the miracles sound over and over again for 20 more minutes. <laughs> that won't make anybody crazy. <laughs> <laughs> he was elected to the papacy on January 5th of 269, and during his papacy, his administration conducted two holy ordinations in December. We haven't had this in quite a while. Nine priests, five deacons, and five bishops. And it's simple, and we're getting it out of the way early. Done. But thankfully, like I said, this is not all we have to talk about about Felix's papacy. Even if there isn't a whole lot more, there is there is an issue that we started dealing with last week, and this is that guy, Paul of Samosata. So we discussed the Synod of Antioch that had been convened to deal with Paul of Samosata, who was the current Bishop of Antioch, who was preaching adoptionist and monarchianist heretical views from that position. Mainly, he was going on about how 
God the Father was entirely and completely separate from Christ the Son, and that all of the dogma of the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being connected in any way was a null concept. So, this is not good. This is not a viewpoint that the church has, but he is the bishop, and this is what he's preaching, and he's also considered to be incredibly corrupt. We actually have a passage on Paul of Samosata from the very, very famous Roman historian from the 18th century, Edward Gibbon, who said, The wealth of that prelate was sufficient evidence enough of his guilt, since it was neither derived from the inheritance of his fathers, nor acquired by the acts of honest industry. But Paul considered the service of the church as a very lucrative profession. His ecclesiastical jurisdiction was venal and rapacious. He extorted frequent contributions from the most opulent of the faithful and converted to his own use a considerable part of the public revenue. By his pride and luxury, the Christian religion was rendered odious in the eyes of the Gentiles. His council chamber and his throne, the splendor of which he appeared in public, the suppliant crowd who solicited his attention, the multitude of letters and petitions to which he dictated his answers, and the perpetual hurry of business in which he was involved, which were circumstances much better suited to the state of a civil magistrate than to the humility of a primitive bishop. When he harangued his people from the pulpit, Paul affected the figurative style and the theatrical gestures of an Asiatic sophist, while the cathedral resounded with the loudest and most extravagant acclamations in the prize of divine eloquence. Against those who resisted his power— or refused to flatter his vanity, the prelate of Antioch was arrogant, rigid, and inexorable. But he relaxed the discipline and lavished the treasures of the church on his dependent clergy, who were permitted to imitate their master in the gratification of every sensual appetite. For Paul... <laughs> oh, yes! Okay! That's a real nice way to be like, there be some orgies. Mm, well, here's the last line for you. For Paul indulged himself very freely in the pleasures of the table, and he had received into the Episcopal Palace two young and beautiful women as the constant companions of his leisure moments. <laughs> leisure moments? There be banging happening up mm. in the palace of the church. What a gentle way to say that. So gentle. Here be orgies. Now, as you might imagine... If this is all going on, this is not going down well with the clergy in Antioch. No, that's an excommunication. Well, they tried. They tried to address this issue twice before, to no success. They had tried to, you know, write to the Pope, and we have the Pope at the time not being able to deal with it. So they call a synod on their own, and they decide to depose Paul from his position in favor of a successor called Domnus. And this is where we have them writing a letter to Pope Dionysius to inform him of their decision. And that's kind of where we ended last week's episode. So Dionysius had died. He had gotten very ill and couldn't handle this. He wasn't trying to ignore it. He was just very sick. Yeah, so he he either died before the letter arrived or before he could answer. So it's Felix who's going to be the one who has to deal with it. Like we said, we have no record of Dionysius responding to this at all. So we know that this is entirely in Felix's court. 
And from what we see of Felix is that he seems to accept this deposition as just and correctly done. And yeah, okay, you guys think he's not the right one. Oh, I don't like that you're telling me that because I'm the freaking Pope, but I agree with you. In light of recent events, mm -hmm. that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, as we briefly discussed last week, Paul of Samosata refused to accept the decision of the Synod. He did not want to give up his position or his house, which... Or his ladies. Jeez. Well, all but the ladies are still church property, so... <laughs> Maybe he could keep them, uh, you know. They're not gonna stick around. So he completely blockaded Domnus from being able to assume the bishopric. And so this is where things start to get a little bit more complicated, because it's said that Paul had some pretty powerful friends. And one of these friends, namely the chief one of importance here, is Queen Zenobia of Palmyra. I have never heard of Palmyra. No oh, man, this woman. Um, if you want to hear more about Zenobia and her husband, Odonathus, there is, they are amazing historical figures that don't get a lot of attention, and Totalis Rankium covered them somewhere in their kind of getting into Aurelian series, so Aurelian... Claudius II or Quintilis, it's somewhere in there. I couldn't find which one, and even Rob and Jamie didn't know quite what episode they put it in. But, oh man. So, we're only going to summarize Zenobia in relevance to our story, because, you know, this is only really tangential, because she's just an influential supporter. So, what's happening right now? This is after her husband dies. And she is de facto running her kingdom, like queen of all. In 270, between 270 and 271, Zenobia had successfully invaded parts of the Roman Empire. Yes, queen. Yeah, she gets temporary control of Egypt, Anatolia, and Cairo, which is the current capital in Turkey. And remember that Antioch is in modern-day Turkey, so this is an extremely powerful woman extremely close by to what's going on in the church. And she supports Paul in his position as bishop, which historian Fergus Miller suggests is because Paul was, quote, the champion of the native Syriac or Aramaic-speaking element of the Antiochian church. So... He's all about Syrian influences, Aramaic influences, rather than Greek-speaking Greek influences, which is where most of the church is at this point. So Zenobia is effectively protecting Paul in his position, which allows Paul to stay put for four years wow. after being deposed. And you have to think of poor Domnus, who had been elected to the actual position, yeah, what's he doing? What's he do? He doesn't get that. He doesn't get the church. He just, is he just sitting there? He's probably sitting in some rental just trying to do his damn job and just cannot do that. So, yeah, it's very unfortunate for Dominus. But as you can imagine, we have a man who is refusing his own deposition. And Paul's rejection does not get taken very well by the Pope. He's like, no, no, I, I agreed with them. You're out. Get out, buddy. Yeah, even though he didn't call the synod that he was deposed from, the synod is being flat out ignored now by someone who's preaching heresy 
And we cannot leave that alone. That is a thing we absolutely need to deal with. So Felix pens a very important letter to the bishops of the church. And like all of these letters and epistles that we get, this one is addressed to a singular person, Maximus Bishop of Alexandria, because they go out all across the way, but they always just address it to someone. So they have to make it look important. Official. Yeah. So this letter is a defense of the Trinitarian dogma in which he lays very clear and emphasizes the unity of the Son of God and the Son of Man in Christ and that they are all unified with God. And if you want to read this letter, there's like a small segment preserved by St. Cyril, but it's not actually available online, so it's quite difficult to find. Good luck looking. So... He's written this very important letter, and this is going out across the empire to basically say, look, Paul is not in the right. Unfortunately, by the 4th century, the letter from Felix had been co-opted by a theologian, Apollinaris, who is the Bishop of Laodicea, who had his own brand of theological ideas against the Trinity. It's not super relevant at the moment, but in very brief terms, because we're not going to have a chance to come back to this, his idea was that Christ's mind and body were separate, like he had a divine mind, but the lower soul like a human, because he had emotion and therefore he couldn't be entirely divine. So it's just kind of a mess. And he took Felix's letter that he had written in defense of the Trinity and misquoted it and decontextualizes it and takes all his comments and kind of bastardizes them, submitting this altered work to the Council of Ephesus in 431 in order to back up his own arguments, since they were, you know, now quote-unquote supported by a pope. So any versions of Felix's letter that have survived history are completely inaccurate to the original document. We don't have a copy of his letter in full that is actually the original. We only get this one that in the future will be totally bastardized to prove someone else's point. Sure is. So, I mean, it's it's not related to his story now, because this is going to happen hundreds of years after he dies. But yeah, this famous historical document written by a pope got twisted around. That's rude, though. Now, of course, this letter that Felix has written... It's just a letter defending the Trinitarian doctrine, and it doesn't automatically remove someone from office who's already refusing to go. So Felix does something we would have never, ever seen in the history of the church before this moment. Nothing you could have even possibly imagined. All right, I don't know what it is, so you gotta tell me. You wanna take a guess? No. <laughs> okay. He turns to the emperor for help. What? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't he stabby-stabby? No, um, remember we talked last week, uh, Emperor Gallienus had granted Christians the legal recognition. You're right, we had a nice guy. Yeah, we had a nice guy. We are in the 40-year little piece of the church. For some reason I don't remember last week at all. It has been a long week. You got sick in there, so... I did. Now that we've covered that recap, I have to tell you that Gallienus is dead by this point anyway. God damn it. And now we have Emperor Aurelian. Is He's fine. He's fine, right? Or is he bad-ish? He's fine-ish or bad-ish? Well, okay. Aurelian is basically one of the best emperors that Rome ever had. 
for Romans. Yeah, what about the Christians? Well, we know that emperors who are good for Rome are not always great for Christians, but at this particular moment, we have Aurelian delivering. He he doesn't break the, the peace of the church, and he actually hears out the Pope when the Pope comes to him for help. That being said, we can't say that he was super, like, sympathetic to, to Christians or whatever. Aurelian 100% had other motives for listening to the Pope and dealing with this. He is a military general who, if he wants to succeed as emperor, he requires a unified empire. And this is a great way for him to make sure that this new population that just suddenly got a legal precedent to exist are going to be loyal to him. He's like, yeah, okay, I will hear you out. We will we will deal with this, but, you know, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for me. Fair. And, I mean, he he is like, it, the way that we are rating popes, Totalis Rankium rated the emperors, and Aurelian wins. So, like, this is this is a good, good, good emperor for Rome. And when he comes into power, Rome's in shambles. So he's going to do amazing things. So we have to credit him for being wise in this one. Aurelian ruled in this matter that he would recognize and support whichever bishop of Antioch, Paul or Dominus, that was recognized by the bishops and the city of Rome. Ha, nice. So he orders that the house was Dominus's and Paul needed to get the hell out of there. This is an interesting moment because we are seeing the primacy of the Church of Rome being elevated and emphasized on a whole new level. We've seen it emphasized within the church. We've talked about how important that is in the church. But now the empire and the emperor is saying, yeah, that's where the head of your religion is. And yes, of course, it benefits the empire to have Rome be the epicenter of power on all levels, you know, government, everything else, and then have this extra religion have their center of power in the same place. But this is still a whole new level of legitimacy. It's huge. Now, and and as a side note, we should mention that in 272, Aurelian leads a military campaign against Zenobia, and he wins, and he takes her captive. So Paul of Samosata absolutely lost that convenient protection, and he's definitely out, and he gets banned from Antioch altogether. That is done with. Everything is is settled. But this is a pretty significant moment for the church. Any way that you look at it, we could look at this one way and say, look, this is a moment where the Pope did not have the power to act on his own. But I don't know if that's a fair assessment because the empire is huge. The church is only newly legitimized and maintaining the authority of a deposition so far away from your home base with way heavier hitters like Queen Zenobia in the mix. It's going to be a challenge either way. So maybe we can look at this as a moment in which him gaining support of the emperor, confirming the Church of Rome as primacy of power, is all good. I mean, it's a pretty powerful moment, any way you look at it. But we need to move on from Paul of Samosata, because he's out. And we have more. Sort of. <laughs> maybe. All right. We have liber pontificalis stuff to talk about, so uh... we know how true that is. It says that Felix issues a decree which dictates that masses should be celebrated in the tomb of the martyrs on the anniversary of their death. Okay, well, I mean, that what the fuck? 
Actually, let's dig into this for. Oh, that was my phone. Text. It farted. What's it want? It did a thing. It wants to tell me that I could listen to a podcast. Thank you. <laughs> phone. <laughs> we are listening to a podcast. I know. Right now. It just wanted to get in on the fun. <laughs> it sure did. Fucking wow. All right. Where were we before I got lost? Celebrating Mass the anniversary. in the tomb yeah. for every time someone f- died. Well, let's dig into it for a moment, because at this point in the church, apparently the tradition when saying masses for martyrs was conducted with a celebration of holy sacrifice conducted at the altars in the catacombs, whereas like sacred mysteries and solemn personal commemoration were conducted at the basilicas, usually built above the catacombs rather than at the grave sites. But as we've seen in previous episodes, especially with Pope Sixtus II, gravesites are becoming sites of religious pilgrimage, and of course they become very sacred spaces to the Christians, so this is a perfect opportunity for the church to make use of those spaces held by the martyrs, commemorating their sacrifice and holy status in the church, and kind of driving that home in a way that's a lot more real and visceral peoples, because then they can go there and celebrate that martyr at the site of that martyr in rest. And, you know, especially with the Sixtus, he's got this big bloody chair at his tomb. Like, people want to connect with that. But again... That's like some... Okay, I understand that it's religious, but it's kind of like that death tourism. It is definitely dark tourism, for sure. And it's definitely grim. But I mean... Catholicism is all about that, you know, relics and... It's all dark tourism. They love blood-stained things and bone fragments and all of that. Sometimes it's just roses. It's fine. Sometimes. Very rarely. So this is a thing that may or may not be happening, because this is coming from Liber Pontificalis. So, again, Historians agree that this decree was probably not a real thing issued by Felix, and it was probably already happening, and had been since the initial constructions of the catacombs. Yeah, it's a lot to to do, though. There's a lot of martyrs, man. Oh, oh, so many. And there's only going to be more. Right? It's just gonna add to it. You just can't leave. You got- you get to live in the tomb, my man. Yeah, so, um, you know, despite this being the little piece of the church, uh, we're going to come back to lots more people being interred at this place. So, either way, the tradition of having masses at the tomb sites of martyrs will continue with the church. And, you know, we, we've talked about the catacombs of Calixtus still having sites inside for mass. We could argue that this is still a thing that the church does. So, there's that. Now, in the same segment on Felix in the Liber Pontificalis, we are also told that Felix was responsible for the creation of a basilica on the Via Appia. This one has been understood and accepted as true, but the second part of the statement is that he was buried at this new basilica, and that's not so true, because every other source says that he was buried in the catacombs of Calixtus, so... You know, just like all the other popes had been. It would be weird if he wasn't. Oh, and and for clarity's sake, we should point out that the catacombs of Calixtus are also on the Via Appia. 
as were most things in ancient Rome, but yeah, we should just say that anyways before we get any text like, oh my god, it's there too. Either way, this is thought that the Liber Pontificalis had somehow confused Pope Felix with a different martyred Felix. They do that. Yeah, and this, this martyred Felix was allegedly initially buried on the site where the new basilica was erected before it was erected. So they're basically building a basilica at this time. Don't build on top of dead bodies. That's how you get poltergeist. Yeah, well, apparently Pope Felix is inspiring martyred Felix to be a poltergeist. And since we're talking about his burial, maybe we should double back and discuss his death. How'd he die? Well, traditionally, in the martyrology and the Liber Pontificalis and the acts of the future Council of Ephesus, Felix gets honored as a martyr. And it says, he obtained the glory of martyrdom. Everybody's a martyr, though. You're a martyr. I mean, you're not dead yet, but... (laughs) You're a martyr, you're a martyr, everybody gets a crown of martyrdom! (laughs) It's also said that he was suffering through the persecutions of Aurelian, working to personally bring non-Christians to the faith. Key phrase there being, under Aurelian. Remember when I said that he was doing the thing for the Christians, and that Mm -hmm. was good for the moment? This is a thing that happens later in the reign of Aurelian. Oh, he changes his mind at some point? Yeah, in 274, the emperor starts to push for a consolidation of the empire into one religion, which is ironic because he's not the common Roman pagan polytheist. He's a specific worshiper of one god, and this is the sun god Sol Invictus. So he's not just like, hmm, no, I don't want to deal with Christians. It's, I I want everybody to follow my religion. And if they're not going to do that, maybe this is a thing they need to deal with. So, I mean... Did he convert to whatever soul invictusism is? He did not. And uh, we cannot be sure. Like, it's weird because it's said that maybe this is where Felix dies as a martyr. But at the same time... Somehow this persecution, if it existed for some reason, doesn't break the little piece of the church that we've been talking about. So, yeah, oh, we don't we don't know. It's just it's kind of a mess. So, all right. It's also possible that this, again, is confusion on the part of the sources for that other martyr, Felix, who's under the basilica and why sometimes our Pope Felix gets a feast day of May 30th because... Yeah, they might have just conjoined these two people. Uh, stop doing that book. And pretty much every historical source does call him a martyr, so we don't really have anything that says natural causes. So we have to just accept that Pope Felix died a token martyrdom. All right. So that's a thing. Uh, Like we said before, Felix was buried at the Catacombs of Calixtus on December 30th of 274, which is verified in the Deposito Episcoporum. And unlike the Liber Pontificalis, citing him being buried at his basilica, everyone else says Calixtus. Now, that's Felix, so we need to spend a little bit of time to rate him. Papatum infallium. Well, he, even though we don't have it today, we know that he wrote a very important theological treatise on defending the Trinity. So this is a, a pope actively contributing to the theology of the church. Uh, He's sticking to his guns about Paul of Samosata and the Trinitarian liturgy. He's 
not allowing this rejection to stand. He went so far as to go talk to an emperor of Rome, which seems kind of ballsy. It is ballsy, and we have to consider that as well, because we have to decide whether or not going to the emperor means he didn't have enough power to deal with it on his own, or whether we see that in a neutral light rather than a bad one. And then, of course, we have that degree of masses for martyrs at the graveside. What do you think? Do you think this is a powerful moment for the church? Do you think this is a weak moment? Mm, it's somewhere in between. I want to give him like a three or a four. I can't. It's somewhere like a 3.5-ish. I'm leaning. Okay. Well, if you give him a three, I will give him a four because I'm kind of teetering in the same zone here. So then we okay. can give him a total of seven. For Papatoma Valium. And I think that's fair because he is doing the right things. He's getting stuff done for the church. There's a lot of bumps in the road along the way there, though. Wow. Yeah. But he did it. He he got Paul of Samosata out. So mm -hmm. there's that. But it's it's not amazing. So Fructus Prohibitum. We don't know anything <laughs> about him for scandal. That's a zero. He stopped some scandal. He did. He really did. That's not, we can't give negative scores on here. Can we minus some points? <laughs> that would be no. rude. Lose points for getting rid of scandals. <laughs> <laughs> for the sake of the math on my spreadsheet. Nope. Seculari impactum. He has a relationship with the Empire that leads him to support the Church of Rome in this moment. But then also maybe persecutions. Maybe he died by the same man. We don't know. It's going to be a tough one to judge. I don't know. I'd give him like a two. Mm. Lukewarm. I'm going to give him some points here for sure, because he is having an active communication with the emperor. That that in itself is pretty big points. He is having discourse with the biggest of secular impact. He is also on the radar of Queen Zenobia, you know, tangentially, but... Yeah, so you're going to give him a two? Yeah. I will match that one for each of the secular rulers that he, he managed to have some sort of thing with. So that's a four for Seculari Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. All right, I'm going to send you a Pope man now. All right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Why does he? All right. Have at her. Describe it. Describe your woes. He's got a butt chin, and he's got some bulldog jowls, and he's got, <laughs> like, a sharp contour somehow amongst the bulldog jowls, and his nose looks like it's been punched a few times. It's kind of like a melty man face, isn't it? it he is, he's melting in so many ways. That man has gotten too warm. I love the bulldog jowls. That's a perfect description for what's happening here. Ooh, what I does this image garner up for you in terms of points that is like a one i have that is wow <laughs> he's got really cute cherub lips though he does well okay you're gonna give him a one because you don't like it but <laughs> that's my prerogative yep yep that's that's true but you mentioned dogs and anything with dogs gets points from me so he's gonna get a four I'm going to give him a four just for bulldog gels. <laughs> All right. It's interesting to look at. And we need, we need popes that are interesting to look at. And he certainly is. So that will give him a 1.25 for Facium Sanctus. But we have other images, which 
I don't know. This this one looks a little bit melty too, but he's got the drag brows again. <laughs> Maybe he's just melting. That yeah. That one looks like Jude Law. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit. Oh my god. Is he our casting for Pope Felix now? We've been casting a lot of people lately. <laughs> I don't like Jude Law though. Okay, so I mean it does kind of look like Jude Law with a little bit of melty and a little bit of drag brows. Like a wax museum Jude Law left out in the sun. Uh, and then we have uh, one that's a little bit different. It's completely nondescript. This could be any freaking pope. But this is this is him um, being divinely inspired as he writes his defense of the Trinity. So that's a thing. Mm, that's not even a face. Yeah, no, it's not. It's just, it's there. I had to save it because it was there, so. he Okay, he looks like... An American caricature from an anime. Big, bushy eyebrows. Oh, yeah, the yeah, chin, a little bit. The huge nose. That's true. But he's not American. He's not. It's just an image, really. It's like, oh, here's a Pope man. That that could even not even be a Pope if you look at it. It could be any Bishop man, really. But they say it's Felix. So there you go. The way that the shadows are falling on his cassock skirt. I don't know. What do you want to yeah. call it? Um, it looks like maybe he's got goat legs. As soon as you started talking about where, I could see where you were going. So, yep, yeah, there's a little bit of goaty leg going on. Doesn't that, does that mean he's Satan? <laughs> that could be Satan. <laughs> we could have been fooled into looking at a picture of Satan this whole time. Tempus Pontificus. January 5th, 269 to December 30th, 274. Five years for a score of 1.25. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. So he is a saint. His feast day officially is December 30th, but then we have that whole 30th of May thing that happened with the other martyr Felix. Um, he died, like, right at the end of the year. He he almost had, like, a perfect year if he had lasted, like, six more days. Dang. So... We have this messed up date, but it's been reduced to a commemoration by Pope Pius Twelfth, so it's not really like a feast day anymore, so it's not that big of a deal. Sometimes in iconography, he gets represented as a pope with an anchor, which I have no explanation for. Maybe just hearkening back to Clement, I don't know. And he is not a patron saint of anything, so we can make him one if you like. Oh, um, well, what was that wax figure shop called? Madame Tussauds? Tussauds? Yeah. <laughs> okay, he he will be the patron saint of Madame Tussauds. All right. Yep, that works. But, you know, maybe like their apprentices in particular because he's <laughs> melting and they've not done a very good job. And that gives him a total score for his popedom of 14.5. It's all right. Yeah. Teens club. We have not had a Pope score lower than him since Antares, our shortest Pope. So, yeah. Um, but he's been around some heavy hitters. Like, we had Dionysius last week scored a an impressive 30 points. Yes. And then we had Sixtus II score 22. So, yeah. I mean, that feels right. I'm okay with that. And then we need to ask ourselves... No, don't ask it. Don't even say it. 
Don't even go through this spiel. I have to, is he worthy of a papal bull? No. Nah. I still gotta ask the question. His goaty legs. He's worthy of a papal goat. I don't know if that's better or worse. All right, well, that brings us to thank yous. We have Patreon thanks to make. We have a new subscriber, a new patron, who will now be absolved of all his temporal punishments. Thank you, Andy Beggar. Ego te absolvo. But we have other thank yous to make, too. We need to thank the Can't Make This Up History Podcast and the Age of Victoria Podcast, who recommended us this week on Twitter, wrote wonderful things about us. Very, very nice. They're so nice. I just, I can't get over it. And both of them are running fabulous podcasts as well. So it's it's really cool when people I like to listen to are like, I like to listen to you. Oh, so, I saw that the age of Victoria got to Victoria suddenly. Yes, just today. It is now in the age of Victoria. Yeah, so congrats, Chris, for making it to Victoria, even though you're going to hear this in the new year and not on December 3rd. <laughs> we are still super proud of you today, the 3rd of December. <laughs> We are. And we need to thank Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium. We can be found on most major podcatching platforms, including Spotify. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook as Pontifax Pod. Feel free to message us. We usually always respond. If you want to send us a more long-form message, request, or otherwise get a hold of us, our email is pontifaxpod at gmail.com. For our bonus episodes and exclusive content, head over to our Patreon page and donate. That's patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. If you feel the need to buy us a tea, because we're not really coffee drinkers, but we do love tea, you can throw us a few bucks in our PayPal account at paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod. As always, please subscribe and rate and review on iTunes or whatever you use. It really helps us get recommended to other people and allows more people to find us. So thank you and good night. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Good night, podcast. <laughs>